I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Do the words some assembly required strike fear into your heart, or do you see that as an exciting challenge? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. We're all wired a little differently. Some people love abstractions and patterns, while others are more visual thinkers and prefer concrete examples. Do you love graphs, or do stories light your imagination? Dr. Temple Grandin may be the most famous autistic person in the country. She describes what it's like to be a visual thinker. Why is this gift so important? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, visual thinking, the hidden gifts of people who think in pictures, patterns, and abstractions. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, the antiviral drug Nermotrelvir, sold under the brand name Paxlovid, reduces the risk of developing symptoms of long COVID. That's the conclusion from a large cohort study published in JAMA Internal Medicine this week. Researchers analyzed data from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Patients who tested positive for COVID-19 and were not hospitalized were selected. They also had to have at least one risk factor for progression to severe COVID-19 illness. 35,717 received Paxlovid within five days of a positive COVID test. They were compared to over 240,000 similar COVID patients who did not receive antiviral treatment. People treated with the antiviral drug Nermotrelvir were about 25% less likely to suffer long COVID symptoms. In addition, they were only about half as likely as untreated people to die from COVID-19. It didn't matter whether they were vaccinated and boosted or not. They still got a similar benefit from Paxlovid. The absolute risk reduction for post-COVID complications was 4.5%. The authors conclude that treatment with this antiviral medication significantly reduces the likelihood of long COVID. The pandemic lockdowns had a lot of negative effects on children's lives. A study published in JAMA Network Open demonstrates that their eyesight also suffered. Researchers did eye exams on 20,500 children between 6 and 8 years old three times before, during, and after the pandemic lockdowns. Nearsightedness, also called myopia, was more common after than before the COVID-19 pandemic struck. The youngest children and those from poor families were most affected. Kids in low-income families had more screen time and less time outdoors. The researchers point out that such lifestyle factors had not returned to pre-pandemic levels and urge efforts to get youngsters more outside playtime as a means of reducing their chance of developing myopia. We first reported on a scary fungal infection resistant to most antifungal drugs back in 2019. This week, the CDC noted that Candida auris spread through healthcare facilities at an alarming rate in 2020 and 2021. 
This fungus is not usually a threat to those who are healthy, but people with invasive medical devices or who must spend weeks in the hospital are at risk. Among such individuals, the infection has a high death rate. Very few antifungal drugs are effective against it. The spores of this yeast can linger on surfaces and may be transmitted that way or directly from person to person through contact. Researchers suspect that severe strain on the healthcare system caused by the pandemic may have contributed to its spread. Tick season is right around the corner. As soon as temperatures start to climb, ticks come out of hibernation. That's bad news for pets and people who like to get out into nature. Tick-borne diseases have been on the rise for decades. People have become familiar with conditions like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and Lyme disease, also known as borreliosis. It's caused by the Borrelia burgdorferi bacterium, and it has been spreading from New England to mid-Atlantic states, the upper Midwest, and as far west as California, Oregon, and Washington. Now there's another tick-borne illness that has the CDC concerned. Babesiosis is the result of infection from a microscopic parasite called Babesia microti. The first case was identified in 1969 on Nantucket Island. Since then, it's been spreading throughout the Northeast wherever deer ticks are found. The parasites hang out in red blood cells. The illness can range from mild to severe. Symptoms may include fever, headache, muscle aches, and joint pain. Left untreated, it can lead to kidney failure, blood disorders, and severe breathing problems. Babesiosis is showing up in New York, New Jersey, and Minnesota, suggesting that the parasites are migrating along with the ticks that harbor them. It's only a matter of time for this disease to become widespread. People need to practice tick bite prevention, including long pants, tick repellent, and conscientious tick checks whenever they come inside. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Do you like puzzles or do they drive you crazy? Some people can visualize just the right piece and get great satisfaction fitting it into its spot, while others simply find such pastimes annoying. What accounts for such differences? Why do some people embrace abstract ideas while others prefer concrete examples? We all have different ways of understanding the world. Perhaps we're all wired slightly differently. Why is it so important to appreciate different ways of thinking? To learn more about visual thinking and the value of neurodiversity, we're talking with Dr. Temple Grandin. She is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Her books include Thinking in Pictures and The Autistic Brain. Her latest is Visual Thinking, the hidden gifts of people who think in pictures, patterns, and abstractions. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Temple Grandin. Well, it's really great to be here again. It was a number of years ago that I was on the show, and I'm looking forward to talking to everybody. Well, we are, we are, del- we are delighted in uh, talking with you again. Dr. Grandin, most of us are completely clueless about how our brains work. We assume that everyone thinks the same way we do. That's not the case. What led you to realize that we think differently? 
Well, when I was in my 20s, I thought everybody thought in photorealistic pictures the same way I thought. And I've written about that for a good number of years. And I was shocked in my late 30s to discover that there's people that think completely verbally and their thoughts are in words. And I do a lot of talks to big corporations and I tell them that the first step is they have to realize that people think differently. Some people are mixtures of different kinds of thinking. And in my new book, Visual Thinking, I discuss object visualizers. That's me. We're the kind of people that are good at um, art, photography, animals, and mechanical things. Then you have the visual, spatial, mathematical thinkers. They think in patterns, not pictures. And then you've got verbal thinkers who think completely in words. And then you've got different combinations of thinkers. And we need to be getting these people together because they have complementary skills, you know, where they skills can complement each other on getting things done. Well, well, we'll want to go into more depth later about the uh, the various different categories that you've just described. But before we get there, you probably are the most famous person with autism in the United States, possibly in the world. Can you describe for us your autism and how it contributed to your expertise in animal behavior? Well, I'm an extreme visual thinker. And the scientific word for that is object visualizer. So in the very first work I ever did with livestock, I got down into the chutes to see what the cattle were seeing. And I noticed that they'd stop at a shadow. They'd stop at a coat on a fence. Other people were not noticing that. And at that time, I didn't know that most other people thought verbally, so they wouldn't think to look at what cattle were they lo- were looking at. Animals live in a sensory-based world. It's not a word-based world. It is a sensory-based world. And I tell animal behavior students, you need to get away from verbal language in order to understand animals. Dr. Grandin, there are some people who love jigsaw puzzles. That happens to be Terry and her entire family. When we're on a family vacation, they love to look at these puzzles and put things together and see the the patterns. I hate puzzles. I mean, I take one look at them and they scramble my brain. Uh, There are people who love to put furniture together. I can't stand it. I mean, it's like, oh, part A goes into part six, part 12. Yeah, my brain can't handle that either. I'm curious about why some people are better able to, for example, enjoy a jigsaw puzzle. And for me, it's pure torture. Well, jigsaw puzzles are pattern thinkers. The people that are good at math at patterns are often very good at puzzles. Now, when it comes to putting furniture together, I throw away the verbal instructions. I just want to look at the diagrams of how the furniture goes together. I don't want to read about it. Sequential verbal information, I just don't get that. And then there's other people that would rather look at the words, but I'll just look at the pictures, what the finished furniture is going to look like, and then the diagrams that show the view, or they call it the exploded view, when, uh, where you can see how the furniture goes together. I would rather just look at that. What about directions? I mean, you know, there was a time when people used maps, and I have to admit, I more or less could find my way with a map. 
But these days we use our devices. Uh, we use our phones. We use our um, computer systems on our cars. And they say, turn left now. And boy, I'm in, I'm in heaven. But when somebody has to give you directions, boy, I get confused. They say, well, you know, at the third light, turn left, uh, go about a half a mile, and then there'll be a Dairy Queen, and then you turn right, and then you do another wiggle, and boy, I'm lost. Explain again this visual thinker thing when it comes to driving. I would rather have a map where I can look at the bird's eye view down on a map uh, of a whole trip. Then I like to put the turns in bullet points, like a pilot's checklist. Two blocks, turn right on Green Street for three miles. Then the next bullet point would be left on uh, on Oak Street. Uh, I actually hate the GPS because it doesn't tell me quick enough. I was actually in kind of a dangerous stuff the other day with a friend. We were going to the Dallas airport and and the GPS didn't give the turns soon enough and actually got dangerous. And I finally said to my friend, I'm going to just watch the signs. I would rather have looked at a map and see how the roads work to the Dallas airport before I go there, if I'm driving. And I don't think you're the only one who feels that way about um, maps or GPS. As you've pointed out, there are just so many different ways that our, our brains organize the information that we're getting from the world. And I, I wonder if you would summarize, as you have done in your wonderful book, Visual Thinking, I wonder if you would summarize the difference between object visualizers and spatial visualizers. And you talk about one of them builds trains and the other makes the trains run. Well, an object visualizer thinks in photorealistic pictures. Okay, let's, start, let's talk about going to the airport, for example. I'm now seeing landmarks along the way. I'm like seeing the exit sign. If I'm going to explain to somebody how to get to the Denver airport or how to get from the Denver airport to my house, uh, I see the landmarks along the way. I'll tell them to go, you know, this far on this road. I also know that people often, you know, are not very good on estimating distances. So I just say, well, I want to know, is it like three blocks or three miles? I want to get some idea of, what, of when the next turn is. But I see the landmarks along the way, you know, on the way to the airport. Um, and the thing I have a terrible time with is long strings of verbal information. I simply cannot remember the sequence. So the object visualizer thinks in photorealistic pictures. Like the HBO movie, Temple Grandin shows how I think. The visual spatial thinker, the person who's good in math, they think in patterns. It's patterns, not photorealistic pictures. And the scientific research actually shows that the two kinds of visualization actually are opposites. You can have people that are mixtures, but you're not going to find an extreme mathematician and an extreme object visualizer in the same person. And I'm an extreme object visualizer, and I'm absolutely terrible at algebra. It's too abstract. There's nothing there for me to visualize. Now, Dr. Grandin, I have a confession to make. I have a rare condition, and you do write about it in your book. It's called aphantasia, where 
people like me, about 2% of the population, cannot visualize anything when we close our eyes. I close my eyes, it's black. Can't see anything, don't have a mind's eye. I, I think you even have a, have a term for it. It's something like blind thinkers. I, I just can't see stuff. Now, I want to ask you, uh, a lot of people that have amphantasias oftentimes are good at math. Are you one of the ones who's good at math? Nope. <laughs> bad at math. You're bad at math because some amphantasia people are good at math. And there's some people have amphantasia that when they're dreaming, they'll see pictures and others uh, do not. And then, of course, you have verbal thinkers. I, this reminds me of an interview I did years ago for my earlier book for Thinking in Pictures. I was at a radio station and I asked the uh, reporter how she got into radio. She said, I used to be in TV and I hated it because I didn't know what to do with the picture. So now I'm in radio. It's all words and I love it. Well, that, that sort of <laughs> describes me. But the thing that I find so fantastic about this whole process is that people who have no idea what it's like to not be able to see things when they close their eyes or people who are completely visual thinkers, they, they don't have any idea what it's like to be a verbal thinker. So how do we break down those barriers? We just have about 30 seconds before the break, but that seems like something that you're really trying to do is to help people appreciate other ways of thinking and seeing and being in the world. The first step is realizing that different kinds of thinking exist. You know, and I mentioned once before, I've talked to many big corporations, and I say, that's the first step, realizing that different kinds of thinking exist. You're listening to Dr. Temple Grandin. She's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University who has designed many facilities for handling livestock. Her latest book is Visual Thinking, the hidden gifts of people who think in pictures, patterns, and abstractions. After the break, we'll explore what society loses when we don't encourage the talents and skills of people who think in different ways. Visual thinkers often pick up on cues that others miss. Could they help us avoid catastrophes like Fukushima? How could we change our educational system to better serve those with the variety of skills we need? What is neurodiversity? Why is it so important? Is there a way we can figure out how our brains work so we'll know how we think? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, Coco Pro Coco Extract. March is National Nutrition Month. Have you heard the recent prominent news around the benefits of flavanols? The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics issued a first-of-its-kind recommendation on flavanols, a daily intake of 400 to 600 milligrams of flavanols from a variety of foods and drinks, uh, such as tea, apples, berries, and cocoa, to support heart health. You can achieve the guideline through diet, but consider how a cocoa flavanol supplement like Cocovia can help fill the gaps during your busiest days. Get 15% off your Cocovia order from March 13th through April 1st using the discount code NNM. 
15POD at cocovia.com. That discount code again, NNM15POD at cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. March is National Nutrition Month. How can Cocovia be a part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com. The People's Pharmacy is also supported by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. We all have different skills, but we may not appreciate just how different we are. Lots of people assume that everyone else experiences the world just as they do. In truth, though, there's a huge range of learning styles. Why are visual thinkers so important to preventing disasters? We are talking with Dr. Temple Grandin, professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Her books include Thinking in Pictures and The Autistic Brain. Her latest is Visual Thinking, the hidden gifts of people who think in pictures, patterns, and abstractions. Dr. Grandin, you have written, when we fail to encourage and develop the talents and skills of people who think in different ways, we fail to integrate ways of learning and thinking that benefit and enrich society. I think this is one of the major points of your book, Visual Thinking. I hope you'll expand on that idea. Well, there's complementary skills. I've worked for years with um, installing equipment and designing equipment for the livestock industry. And I found that it's two parts of engineering that incorporate the different kinds of thinking. You have the clever engineering department over in the shop who are inventing and patenting complex equipment. And then your more mathematical engineers, the visual spatials, are designing the refrigeration, figuring out power and water requirements. So there's the mathematical side, but there's also very much the visual thinking side. And we've got a skill loss issue right now. For example, if you want to build a poultry processing plant, that equipment's all coming from Europe. And it goes back to their educational system because they've kept the hands-on classes in the schools. And when the kids get into high school, they can decide whether to go the university route or to go more the tech route. And they don't look at the tech route as sort of a lesser form of intelligence. But my kind of mind's getting screened out now with all the math requirements. And we don't have people now to fix elevators and, um, and do mechanical work, because those are the object visualizers that have a difficult time with abstract math. I think about mishaps and, and the way in which your way of seeing the world is so crucial. And you talk a little bit in your book about Fukushima. So yes. number one, for people who may have forgotten what happened at Fukushima, please explain that. And also the 737 MAX 
and why we ended up with such a disaster there. Why visual thinkers would be so important to prevent those kinds of problems? Well, mathematically inclined engineers calculate risk. Object visualizers like me see risk. Now, Fukushima was the Japanese nuclear power plant that melted down. And when I found out why that had happened, I'm going, how could you have done this? Uh, Simple watertight doors would have protected the electrically operated emergency cooling pump uh, when the tsunami flooded the site. The mathematical engineers did a perfect job of making it earthquake proof. It shook and it shook and it shook and it was fine. 20 minutes later, it was drowned. They did not see the water filling up the site and drowning the electric pump. All I needed to know about that reactor is if that electric pump doesn't run when I need it, I'm in so much trouble, it's not funny. And what happened is they didn't see it. Same thing with the Boeing MAX. Oh, and by the way, the MAX is back in service. I'm flying on it. It's beautiful. Best luggage racks in the industry. You can get all the bags on it. It's a great plane. They've got it fixed. But they had two horrible disasters that did not have to happen. And there's a little sensor called an angle of attack sensor. It's about the size of a Sharpie pen that measures air angle and tells the pilot that the plane is stalling, which is really dangerous in a big plane. Um, And normally it just tells the pilot they're in danger of stalling. Well, they took one of these sensors and wired it up to a new computer system that the pilots did not know about. And what happened with the MAX is when the sensor broke, the plane thought it was stalling when it actually was flying level and straight. And I'm going, how could you do that? Didn't you see a pigeon just busting that sensor off? They're very fragile. They just didn't see it. Now, I since found out last week, I went on a trip to Seattle, and I sat next to a Boeing engineer on a plane in Seattle just last week. And they told me that a mechanic in the shop had warned them of the problem. And they didn't pay attention to the mechanic in the shop. That would have been the visual thinker like me that warned them. It was in the beginning, it was a visual thinking mistake. They just didn't say it. It seems to me, Dr. Grandin, that that was more than a uh, a failure of visual thinking. There was had... other thing. The beginning, in the beginning, it was a failure of visual thinking. Later on, oh, the flight manual, let's not get started on that. That was, uh, uh, it should have stated in the flight manual that the computer was there and what it did. And they should have paid attention to the mechanic. And they should have paid attention. And if the original mistake had been not made, let's say you have two sensors, the plane has two of them. If you wire up the computer to two sensors and you break one, then you have a thing called angle of attack disagree, which basically tells you that one of the sensors is broken and they should have been indicated to return to the airport. You see, in the beginning, it was a visual thinking mistake, and then later on, it wasn't. I think other things that were a problem is moving their corporate office to Chicago, I think, was a a big mistake because that gets the managers away from the shop, which I don't think is good. Suits need to get out in the shop. Dr. Grandin, you also write about the Colonial Pipeline being hacked, and I remember when that happened, we were at the beach on vacation. And boy, the lines at the gas stations stretched half a mile or longer. 
and, and people were desperate to get gasoline. And more recently, there have been power substations that have been attacked. And there are all of these ransomware problems going on. What, what is it about visual thinkers that could perhaps help us prevent some of these terrible problems that are affecting our society these days? Well, you see, the problem is the big is fragile. Doesn't matter whether it's meat and meat plants. Um, they got shut down during COVID. That was a complete mess. Okay, so the gas supply line in in Europe, for example. You know, a big supply chain with a one source. When it works, it's great. It's economical. You do quality. Everything else. When you break it, you're really in trouble. You have a more distributed supply chain. The product, no matter what it is, will be more expensive. But the supply chain doesn't break as easily. And that, and this is the reason right now while we're building semiconductor plants in the U.S. right now, because you've got all the eggs in just a few baskets overseas for semiconductors. And and the visual thinkers can see these risks coming, but lots of times the verbal thinkers don't heed the warnings. And we need visual thinkers to fix infrastructure when it gets broken. You see, the tendency with verbal thinking is they tend to grossly overgeneralize. They'll talk about something, well, we have to have an inclusive environment. But then how do you go about making that in inclusive environment? You know, I've done um, uh, talks for corporations on diversity. I said, you need these different thinkers. You need these skills. I told a steel company, if you don't have those mechanics out there in your shop, your mill is going to fall apart. You need these skills and you need them really badly. Well, that brings me to my next question, Dr. Grandin. How do we change our educational system so that we do keep people with those skills, people with those ways of interacting with the world in our pipelines, in our educational system, ready to learn how to help fix our infrastructure or build new infrastructure or whatever needs to be done? Well, putting hands-on classes back in the schools and then this uh, requirement, like in the state of California, for example, I couldn't graduate from high school because I can't do algebra. And I think we need to be looking at what fields you need abstract math for, chemistry and quantum computing. Yes, you're going to need linear algebra, all kinds of higher math I can't do. But does a veterinarian need to have calculus and algebra? There's a lot of good people kept out of the veterinary profession because they can't do higher math. You know, I think we need to be looking at where you really need those skills and where you don't need them. In my kind of mind, can't do higher math. And people that patented complicated mechanical equipment that I worked with, they couldn't do algebra either. And they barely graduated from high school. And lots of times those people out working in the shop are not given enough, uh, enough credit. You see, now with things starting to break, oh, we're realizing that we need these skills and we need them really badly. Dr. Grandin, you have written a bit about neurodiversity. I wonder if you can tell us what that means and why it's so important. Well, neurodiversity originally started in the with the, with the autism uh, people who have autism, and then it gradually uh, grew into dyslexia, ADHD. But it's basically you know people who think differently. And I tell um, big corporations that you need to have 
neurodiverse minds because you need the skills. You need the object visualizers like me to keep infrastructure running, invent mechanical things. You need the visual spatial engineers uh, to um, do mathematical parts of engineering, and you need the word thinkers keep a lot of it organized. I tend to give engineering examples because that's stuff I've worked on the most. So, Dr. Grandin, I think at this point, we really would like to ask you, essentially, how can our listeners learn to embrace the differences that we have been talking about today between all of the different ways in which our brains work? And how can we actually appreciate the fact that even though we've had general categories, really none of us has a brain that works exactly like anybody else's. And lots of people are mixtures of the different kinds of thinking. But when you get a label like autism, dyslexia, that's when the thinking types tend to get more extreme. But many people are kind of mixtures. I've discussed this with a lot of people. But the first step is, is realizing that it exists. And Betsy and I made a great team working on the book because we totally recognized um, our different skills. I made associations that she would not have made, but then she smoothed out all the writing and made it less uh, and made it much better organized. It, it's um, it's recognizing that different kinds of thinking are there, and we need these skills. And I'll think of here's something I just thought of. I see these big fancy advertisements of these super tall apartment buildings, like in New York, beautiful glittering towers. And I go, they're not going to be very nice if the water pumps don't work. You see, I'm immediately thinking of those sorts of things. Yes, there's a, yeah, you got to make sure the mechanical systems work in that building, or you're not going to want to be on the 50th floor. Dr. Grandin, it seems like as important as it is for all of us to appreciate different styles of learning, different ways of thinking. It's especially important for teachers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of teachers are very highly verbal. And I've talked to some teachers who think you need algebra for logical thinking. I don't use algebra for logical thinking. In fact, when I was doing book signing, I gave a talk at a school for a a visual thinking book signing. And I talked to a principal who didn't even know that object visualizing, my kind of thinking, even existed. He didn't know it existed. And and I think that's very concerning. Well, I hope that anybody listening to us today has now been enlightened as far as that concern is concerned and will appreciate the fact that we all have a lot of different ways. Each of us has our own way of running our brain and understanding the world. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. Well, and I do, uh, I want to see young students today that think differently get into really good careers. Because the thing that's given my life meaning is having an interesting career where I could do good. I want to see these kids that are autistic and other labels get out and do great things in the world. You know, a lot of famous people like Einstein probably had autism. He was dyslexic. He was um, not not dyslexic. He was uh, nonverbal till age three. Michelangelo probably had autism. Uh, where would he end up today? He was a 12-year-old school dropout. The world really does need all the different kinds of minds. And how can we figure out 
what our brain is doing. I mean, you know, I knew that I hated jigsaw puzzles. And I just and I just run the other way when somebody pulls one out. Uh, I know that I'm not very good at assembling things. I mean, if 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 there's a toy or a piece of furniture, you do not want to call upon me to put it together. Um, but I have other skills that may be valuable. How can we go about finding out how we think, how we learn, how we interact with the world? I think it's very important for students to get exposed to all kinds of different things. And people ask me, what would I do to improve the schools? I want all the hands-on classes back in the schools, art, sewing, woodworking, theater, dance, music. I tried playing musical instruments. I wasn't very good at it, but I was super good at art. And my mother always encouraged my ability in art, you know, things like skilled trades classes, welding, auto mechanics. So students get exposed to a whole lot of different things. And then they can see what they gravitate towards. And uh, there's plenty of sports. I was one of the ones where I wasn't never that good at sports. There's other people where the kinesthetic types are going to be super good at sports. But you don't know until you try things. So I'm a big believer in having young students trying all kinds of stuff to see what they gravitate towards. And we have kids today growing up that have never used a ruler. They've never used tools. They're totally separated from the world of the practical. I don't think that's a good thing. Dr. Grandin, what would you like our listeners to take away from your wonderful book, Visual Thinking, and our conversation today? Well, I want people to realize that different kinds of thinking exist and that all kinds of different projects require different kinds of thinkers working together as teams. And the first step is realizing that different kinds of thinking exist. That is the first step. Dr. Temple Grandin, thank you so much for writing Visual Thinking and for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. And thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Temple Grandin. She's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University who's designed many facilities for handling livestock. She was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in September 2017. Her books include... Thinking in Pictures, Livestock Handling and Transport, and The Autistic Brain. Her latest is Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions. After the break, Dr. Lawrence Fung will tell us what people mean by neurodiversity. What does it mean for a workplace to be neurodiversity friendly? Autism is not the only condition that qualifies as neurodiverse. There are many others, including ADHD, epilepsy, Tourette syndrome, and bipolar disorder. How should we understand the term spectrum? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. March is National Nutrition Month. How can Cocovia be a part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're talking about the value of neurodiversity. What does that mean? How can people understand the challenges of coping with conditions like autism or Tourette's syndrome? We turn now to Dr. Lawrence Fung, assistant professor at Stanford University School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science. Dr. Fung is director of the Stanford Neurodiversity Project and the Neurodiversity Clinic. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Lawrence Fung. Thank you for having me today. Dr. Fung, we have just spoken with Dr. Temple Grandin about neurodiversity. She's probably the most famous person with autism in the world. I wonder if you could help us understand what people mean, your colleagues in particular, when they say neurodiversity. Yes, neurodiversity is really a new way of thinking about diversity, very much like we understand the diversity uh, based on people's races, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation, etc. And this is really about understanding people's diversity in their brain. If we think that behaviors are related to the brain function, is also because of the diversity of the behaviors that uh, we would consider neurodiversity be uh, a way to understand that all of these uh, differences in behaviors and brain function are really part of normal variation of the human population. And a lot of the time when we talk about neurodiverse conditions, we would refer to, for example, autism, ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and dyslexia, and many more other conditions that are seen by psychiatrists and neurologists. And um, basically, what we believe is that all people's differences in their brain can be considered to be potentially great assets because of the differences in people's perspectives. It is only going to be better if we embrace neurodiversity uh, rather than thinking about uh, how we define them medically. Well, I love that idea of looking at ways in which these uh, otherwise clinical labels can be unpacked to uh, be considered as assets. I wonder if you would tell us right now uh, about the Neurodiversity Project that you direct at Stanford University. Yes, happy to do so. We have been doing this project for just about five years or so. And basically how it started was that uh, my 
son is on the autism spectrum and as he's growing up, I really believe that he and many others like him can have a better identity about themselves if they focus on their dreams and interests. And because of that, I was uh, looking for uh, examples of whether or not this is a reasonable approach. And there are people that are in the tech industry, such as SAP and Microsoft, etc., that they have started hiring people on the autism spectrum. And they really found that people on the spectrum can be very productive and very innovative. And the reason why they are able to do that in their organizations is because they uh, really make their workplace neurodiversity friendly. So this is basically what I was uh, really focusing on to make places more neurodiversity friendly. And it can be in education setting or in employment setting. Could you tell us, please, what that would look like? What does it mean for a workplace to be neurodiversity friendly? So when we understand people's intentions, uh, we tend to be able to work better with uh, these individuals. A lot of the time, most people, when they work with each other, after a little while, they kind of get to know each other and they know what people's tendencies may be and they uh, would be able to just figure it out. Even for new people that are coming into a, a new place to uh, study or work. But for people that are neurodiverse, they tend not to understand how to really understand, uh, how, how to work with the new environment because of a concept called the hidden curriculum. So we all would be uh, able to kind of learn the uh, new environment by observation and talking to people. But neurodiverse individuals have a lot more challenges in understanding the uh, hidden curriculum. So if the uh, employers or the educators are able to understand what really is constituting the hidden curriculum and really spell it out for neurodiverse individuals and also understand that neurodiverse individuals have different tendencies in terms of how they learn, in terms of how they communicate, then it will be more able to make the workplace more neurodiversity neurodiversity friendly. Dr. Fung, I find it quite fascinating that people see the world or interact with the world through their own lens, their own experience. So if, if someone has no idea what ADHD is like, no idea what autism is like, no idea what some of the other neurodiversity conditions are like, they don't really relate to understand or even empathize with someone who has a completely different way of seeing and thinking about the world. I happen to have a condition, Terry, you can pronounce it better than I can. Aphantasia. So I can't see things. When did you figure that out, Joe? I don't think I realized it until I was middle-aged. 
but you, most, you knew you didn't see things, but you didn't realize that other people could. I didn't have a clue that other people could see stuff when they close their eyes, their, their mind's eyes, so to speak. So I, I was in the dark about what the rest of the world was imagining or seeing. And of course, the rest of the world have no way of knowing that when I close my eyes, it's black. There's nothing there and I can't imagine things. So it, it's not a terrible challenge for me. I can get through the world without being able to see stuff. But it's fascinating to me that how do we, how do we begin to educate people to understand both the, the pros and cons, the pluses and minuses, the challenges of neurodiversity if they haven't experienced it themselves? I think partially the media has been helping in educating the general public about uh, conditions such as autism. So uh, whether or not they are good examples or not uh, is a different discussion. But like there's the good doctor, there is Rain Man, there is a, a new uh, series called Extraordinary Attorney Wu uh, from Netflix. And, uh, and they, they, they all depict someone on the autism spectrum uh, and all of them in a very different way. And one thing that is good about like seeing like multiple examples is that it is indeed true that if you have met one person with autism, you have met one person with autism, the heterogeneity of the population is just enormous. It is really difficult to just tell people like you have met uh, David. Uh, I'm just making up a name. And David is on the autism spectrum, and he he has a very high IQ, and uh, you're you're going to be enjoying uh, uh, working with him, especially when you speak with him about dinosaurs. So that it is uh, on one hand is a good way of understanding people with differences, how they function as an individual, but I think it is also important to instill the idea that there is a huge heterogeneity. It is uh, really more important to think about how to be open-minded and try to be interested and learn about the person. A lot of the people with autism, for example, they have very interesting stories to, to tell. And uh, sometimes they are uh, really so interested in talking about their stories. They may be talking a little bit too much uh, about their interests and uh, forget about uh, a more reciprocal interaction. But uh, that's part of autism. So basically, understanding how to interact with people who are different it's going to be opening the windows to see them. And on the other hand, we, um, as, a, as someone interested in uh, improving the lives of people who are neurodiverse, I also think that it's a two-way street. It's not just about the neurotypical individuals trying to understand uh, neurodiverse individuals. 
The neurodiverse individual should also understand how to understand neurotypical people. So when we are having that two-way street, then we may be able to really uncover things and may really learn something that is really remarkable. That sounds like a a very good idea. Dr. Fang, we've been talking about neurodivergence. You've used a couple of terms that people would recognize as clinical labels, ADHD and autism. Are there other conditions that would fit under this neurodivergent umbrella? Yeah, indeed. There are many uh, conditions that we can Consider to be uh, neurodiverse conditions, uh, such as like tics or Tourette syndrome, uh, such as epilepsy, and even the psychiatric conditions like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. I would consider all of those brain differences, especially when the these brain differences are. Uh, really starting from early on in life. And um, that's especially important to embrace them. A lot of the time, there is also overlap between the different neurodiverse conditions. For example, like autism and ADHD combination is very common. Dr. Fang, we've, we've also talked about a spectrum, and I am imagining, and perhaps my uh, way of understanding this is completely wrong, but I have been imagining that this spectrum is an increase or a decrease in intensity. For example, as you were describing a person who is very smart, but on the spectrum and very interested in uh, a particular topic and perhaps so interested in their topic that they talk and don't give other people a chance to interact with them. This is actually a behavior I'm super familiar with from my own experience in my family and even my own self. So uh, is this the wrong way to understand the term of spectrum? Well, I think what you uh, are kind of starting to think about is in the right direction. But I would say that if we are talking about autism spectrum, for example, um, we are not saying that everyone is autistic, obviously. Because everyone could have a little bit of the autistic trait here and there, right? Like um, people can be inflexible and the, the, the lack of uh, cognitive flexibility is one of the hallmarks of autism. And uh, some people may be very persistent on doing uh, certain things and, um, and people on the spectrum also have that uh, persistence and sometimes when things don't go the way that uh, people think is productive, people will call it pers- pers- um, perseveration. So all, I would say the heterogeneity of the uh, people on the autism spectrum is very large. But uh, we are also not saying that like, not all people that have a little bit of the autistic traits 
would be considered to be on that spectrum. This is kind of like one way of thinking about it in terms of the terminology and who's under which subset of the neurodiverse population. But if we are also thinking on another sense that is not about heterogeneity of the autism spectrum, it's about the, the brain differences of every single one of us. That's neurodiversity. Dr. Fung, Dr. Oliver Sacks described people with Tourette's syndrome as valuing the spontaneity that their neurological system displays. Other people are kind of put off by it because they sometimes say bad words or they do things that seem quite odd. This idea of valuing neurodiversity is something the rest of us really need to embrace rather than to feel uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. I think um, most people are uncomfortable uh, with certain things because, or, or it can be anything, it's because of the lack of understanding. Uh, when you understand that uh, something that you haven't seen is actually um, something that can be quite good and uh, something that can be beautiful, then you won't have that bias. So it is really important to to raise the awareness of neurodiversity. And by doing so, people would, when they see people that have uh, Tourette syndrome, they they won't walk away. They would um, just understand that this person has tic disorder or Tourette syndrome. And, um, And also not to assume that this person has the ability on has the lack of ability of doing certain things, and uh, Tourette syndrome is one example. The other example is there are people that do not talk, and they are on the autism spectrum. And um, most recently, I uh, got an opportunity to uh, to uh, to meet um, Elizabeth Bonker, who is non-speaking autistic individual she uh, just graduated with a 4.0 GPA from uh, Rollins College and was the was the valedict uh, she, she was the uh, graduation ceremonies uh, speaker so um, so she her her um, graduation speech went viral it was on ABC and on MS, uh, NBC, and so forth. She was really inspiring because when you are interacting with her in initially without an explanation, you really don't, can tell how much intellect she has. She's just a brilliant woman. She does not speak. She would interact with other people in a different, in a kind of not the typical way. But she's really, really amazing person. So if there are more people in the general public that would be understanding that neurodiverse people can be really so amazing, 
I think the, uh, the, the world can be a very different place. There, there will be more opportunities for people that have differences. Dr. Fung, how do you give a speech non-verbally? Oh, that's a good question. So she definitely type everything ahead of time. So there are also uh, some uh, assistive technologies that can be useful to, uh, to basically convert the text to speech. So a lot of the time, the uh, people that are non-speaking, but they are they have uh, average or way above average intelligence. They use uh, those types of technology. And this uh, brilliant woman, Elizabeth Bunker, is not the only one that uh, that's non-speaking and is uh, really amazing. There are and several more that I personally know that graduated from college and having a lot of impact in what they do to the society. Dr. Lawrence Fung, thank you so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today and for pointing out that neurodiversity includes strengths as well as weaknesses for all of us. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Dr. Lawrence Fung. He's assistant professor at Stanford University School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science. Dr. Fung is director of the Stanford Neurodiversity Project and the Neurodiversity Clinic. We spoke earlier with Dr. Temple Grandin, professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Her latest book is Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and abstractions. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. Connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G A I A, herbs.com. And by Cocoa Via Dietary Supplements, March is National Nutrition Month. How can Cocoa Via be a part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1335. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. This week's podcast has a fascinating story about a non-speaking autistic valedictorian. You will want to hear that address. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you will also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week.
Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.